The Small Business Administration and the Defense Department recently launched an effort to boost private capital investment in critical technologies. The program will provide federal guarantees to investments in companies the Defense Department considers critical. Joining me with details, the SBA's Associate Administrator for the Office of Investment and Innovation, Bailey DeVries. Ms. DeVries, good to have you back. Good to be here. Thank you for the invitation today. And for clarity, this is not one of the efforts that I know SBA is involved with and DOD is involved with to get commercial products over the so-called valley of death or to get new products into commercialization. This sounds like it's more aimed at getting the products developed in the first place. Tell us what's going on. Yes. So we'll cover the spectrum of early stage through growth and scale up. The way I would think about this is that building on the longstanding and successful relationship that the Department of Defense and SBA have had through the Small Business Innovation Research and Tech Transfer Programs, which do address the federal support of those earliest of ideas for research and development and prototyping and support for commercialization, this is a broader effort to connect capital in the U.S. to those that are developing technologies that seem to be and known to be critical to our broader U.S. national security. So those could be technologies that are purchased by the Department of Defense, but they might be other technologies that are not going to be procured by the Department of Defense, but we see as vital to our long-term economic stability, growth, and national security. So I hope that that paints the picture of how this is broader. There will be some investors, right, that may invest in that critical stage of commercialization, but there are different needs and gaps in the market today when it comes to critical technology areas. And one of the documents states that this program, it's called SBICCT, and we'll get whatever it is later, it says will support licensing that is additive and complementary to free market activity, avoiding existing areas of efficient and effective market activity. So if something does have commercial appeal or it might be something defense would want, why would capital have not found it in the first place? It's an excellent question. So the way to think about this, right, is that there's always the consideration of relative value, where investors would place dollars based on considerations such as perceived or actual risk, the duration of those investments. There are many factors that are considered. And so by the federal government through the Small Business Investment Company program, the SBIC program, which is a 65-year-old longstanding program that was developed during the Eisenhower administration, so that way the federal government could provide additional financial support for funds that are investing in small businesses and startups. Through that program, we are able to shift the risk return of these funds. So I can give you a great example. So of the critical technology areas, there are 14 in total, by the way, some of those areas would require very long duration investment or very capital intensive investment. So if you think about such technology areas as quantum computing or space technology or different facets of the renewable energy market or hypersonics, the duration of these investments and often the capital intensive nature when compared to investments, say, in B2B SaaS, so software as a service type of investments, does not necessarily appeal to return-seeking investors if they have a fiduciary responsibility. However, if through the use of a government-guaranteed loan, 
we can shift the overall risk return of those pooled investment vehicles, then such investments could be more attractive financially to private market investors. Add to it through the SBIC Critical Technologies Initiative, the Department of Defense providing programmatic resources and support to further de-risk those investments. We have conviction that this proven model through the SBIC program will be capable of helping to increase the supply of capital flowing to these technology areas that we have strong belief need greater investment. We're speaking with Bailey DeVries. She's Associate Administrator for the Office of Investment and Innovation at the SBA. So you've got kind of an oversight two-layer challenge, I think, because one, you want to understand that the investors that you are backing don't have backing elsewhere, and the risk is sufficient that the government guarantee should be there. And second, that the companies that they're investing in that are in these critical technologies have some kind of realistic base that they're operating from and are actually viable outfits and not just people, oh, there's a loan guarantee, let's get some capital. That also is the elegance of the approach of the Small Business Investment Company Program, the SBIC program, where the federal government doesn't work point to point with individual small businesses and startups, but we work with partners with deep expertise in performing due diligence on companies in a particular segment of the market at a particular stage in particular industries. And then they invest in a basket of companies. So typically somewhere between you know 15 to 30 companies would be within a fund structure. And therefore the risk is pooled and there's an intermediary in the middle that has deep relationships within that part of the market and can allocate capital and allocate risk across that basket to seek to provide a financial return and also advance innovation within their area of focus. So different from other loan guarantee programs that you see in the federal government, where the federal government would be providing direct support to an individual company, the SBIC program solves for that uh, idiosyncratic single company risk and instead supports the growth and development and financing of broader baskets, which enables us to advance innovation within different segments of the economy and also work collaboratively with the private sector to advance those technologies and fund the future of innovation. So you and DOD then are not on the hunt for these companies. They are known to risk investors that can pull and roll them up for you for that guarantee. Exactly, exactly. And you're threading, I guess, a pathway among the SBIC program that you mentioned, among the idea of simply research and development grants such as DARPA might award, and then the whole idea of challenge competitions, which are low-dollar types of things intended to kind of float up people that might have great ideas. It's Mm -hmm. somewhere among all of that. Yeah, so what I would say is different types of financing play a role at different points in the evolution of a company. And they're not all separate and distinct. You have to think about the types of capital you need when and how you might layer them on at various points in time. 
to keep the cost of capital for a growing business as low as possible. So that way they're not servicing debt or decreasing equity to a level where they don't have enough equity available for financial incentives for other employees or investors. So these are all different considerations that I would say that personally have a high degree of conviction that the more we can do to not have gaps and to enable venture equity investment in early stage companies that are also pursuing federal grants or contracts simultaneously, the more likely we will be to nurture these companies and support them on their growth journey, particularly those companies that are frontier technologies that are going to be very capital intensive in nature and often very long duration. And so it's not just going to be a grant that is going to enable the success and sustainability of that company. It is going to be in a range of different types of financing options. Additionally, the opportunity to create uh, stronger networks of subject matter experts and support around a growing company is critical important. It helps with customer relationships. It helps with future financing. It helps with good governance of these businesses. So strengthening the networks around these companies is critically important. And you mentioned there are 14 technology areas. What tops the list here? Yes, I'll give you the list. And this is the Department of Defense. So Research and Engineering, R&E, they publish the 14 critical technology areas. They are biotechnology, quantum science, future generation wireless technology, advanced materials, trusted AI, integrated network system of systems, microelectronics, space technology, renewable energy, advanced computing and software, human machine interfaces, directed energy, hypersonics, and integrated sensing and cyber. Well, that just about covers the waterfront. (laughs) It's an extensive list. And is there money out already under this program? The agreement between DOD and SBA was signed just in late September. So we signed our memorandum of agreement to partner back in March, which was really exciting over at South by Southwest. And then in September, we published our investment policy statement for the program following changes in regulations to the SBIC program. And since then, we have received a number of applications from funds that are interested in applying for an SBIC license under the Critical Technologies Initiative. So we are in the process process of performing due diligence on those funds through our licensing process and excited about the pipeline of investors that are interested in the program and look forward to sharing more in the uh, the weeks and months ahead. Bailey DeVries is Associate Administrator for the Office of Investment and Innovation at the Small Business Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Tom. I hope you have a great Monday. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, 
at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important, so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. 
what's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. 
and even your title, Chief People Officer. What does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things 
through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.